Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Yeah, buonasera, everybody. Good to be back. The moon's hitting our eyes like a big pizza pie <laughs> because we just returned from the Italian Contemporary Film Festival, but we're going to get to that later. Uh, we'd like to start by just giving you an update on what the temperature is like in our fair city of Toronto. On the last premium episode, we talked a little bit about the Toronto Raptors and how Canada, uh, well, Toronto at least, caught raptor fever. And I would say the, the country caught raptor fever. Yeah, sure. There were Jurassic parks springing up uh, coast to coast to coast. We left it on a bit of a cliffhanger, but uh, yes, uh, if you didn't hear, the raptors did indeed take the, uh, the, the pennant. What did they win? <laughs> and in a display of extraordinary displaced Stanley Cup energy... Our city rallied. Just came alive. Uh, on Monday, we had the Raptors parade here where I'm, I heard something like two or three million people were downtown. Was it three million people? In uh, I didn't see a figure, but I mean, downtown was just flooded. It yeah. was incredible. I think there were actually more people downtown than there were like the population of Toronto. It, it was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed the game. I watched, I mean, I watched the playoffs from start to finish. I watched... I think almost every game. I was looking at it and, uh, you know, it was great to see the city come together. There are so few shared collective experiences. I mean, I myself didn't watch the last game. <sighs> I was I was woken up by car horns. Uh, oh, man. On, so I knew what happened. Well, I live right downtown. And the, I mean, the noise when, like, I was watching and I thought, you know, like within a second or two of the buzzer going, I'm going to go and stand on the balcony and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I, I tweeted a video. Like, it was it was crazy. It was like VE Day at Avenue and Bloor. It was unbelievable. Is there any American city that would have a comparable reaction if one of their teams won? Something? I mean, I was I was wondering, you know, St. Louis just won the Stanley Cup for the first time. And, I mean, was downtown St. Louis quite like this? Probably not. Because I was saying that, you know, it, I mean, it was genuinely nice to have everybody in the city kind of experience something you know, collectively for a change. And a, and a really kind of idealized reading of that is, you know, hey, Toronto actually does have, you know, a, an organic kind of community identity. But I mean, you, you your observation was that, I mean, yeah, we do have one and it's and it's in feeling kind of slightly inferior. So we kind of overcompensate yeah. when a Toronto team does well. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I don't want to sound like a, like a grouch. It was genuinely, that. it was great. It was great fun. But, you know, speaking of collective Toronto experiences, um, earlier this evening, Will and I wandered down to the, uh, what was it called? The Italian... The Italian Contemporary Film Festival. The Italian Contemporary now Film Festival. Now in its eighth year. Time flies. Yeah, I know. Uh, I've been going to it for the last few years, actually, <laughs> because there's a filmmaker there who I keep tabs on. I think this episode is really for the fans who want, who want Will and Luke deep cuts. In this case, specifically, Will deep cuts... Tonight we'll be talking about one of Will's muses. Uh, <laughs> the last filmmaker that I really still get excited for. Yeah, in an age when, you know, all the all the greats are, are, are dead. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, you know, Will was saying as we're going into the theater, like, you know, seeing this man's films, you know, the, this is the only, the only filmmaker I can still get excited for. We're talking, of course, well, not of course, never heard of him, <laughs> of uh, Toronto energy drink mogul and impresario and um, prominent 
How, how would Pro- one describe prominent him? Prominent Toronto filmmaker, Even, local character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and vocalist, as he was described in the introduction. Talk show host. Talk show host. Yeah, man who wears many hats and contains multitudes. Uh, Frank D'Angelo. This is somebody who I think Will has really been chomping at the bit to introduce the Michael and Us fan base to, because Will is really Frank D'Angelo's biggest fan. There's kind of no way of learning about Frank D'Angelo without becoming sort of mildly obsessed uh, because his career and life, they're long, they contain multitudes. But I'm, I'm going to try to put it as briefly as possible. And all my friends and loved ones are so tired of hearing me talk about Frank D'Angelo at this point. So this is this is really for you guys. So Frank D'Angelo, he, he owns a, a company called D'Angelo Brands. He used to own a brewery called Steelback. I believe he has the uh, license for Arnold Palmer energy drinks here. I thought it was... So He's is he behind the Cheetah energy and drinks? And he is behind the Cheetah energy uh-huh. drinks. And for many years, he was just sort of a colorful food and beverage mogul. The Cheetah energy drinks are notable because he did this commercial with... Uh, Ben Johnson. And Ben Johnson, if you don't know, was a disgraced Olympic track star who was caught doping. Um, And the commercial, it was it was Frank interviewing Ben Johnson. And he says, no, no, tell me, Ben, uh, do you cheetah? He's like, absolutely. I cheetah all the time. And he holds up the cheetah energy drink. And that commercial played on Hockey Night in Canada. Oh, yeah. Which is the biggest show in Canada. Mm -hmm. The most watched show. Frank, at some point in middle age, decided that it was time for him to pursue his entertainment ambitions. I know that when he was a younger man, he was in a band, and he put some of those dreams away for a while. But, you know, at, at some point in his 40s or 50s, you know, he, he started to invest heavily in his music career. You can go see him perform with his... Ten, and, and you ten, have, ten in fact. Stars. I've seen him a few times. <laughs> Uh, he, he performs every year at Taste of the Danforth, and, you know, I'm always there. I've seen him perform at his at his restaurant, which is now uh, no longer there. He had a restaurant on King Street called the Forget About It Supper Club. But in addition to his music career, he has a talk show that he hosts on Friday nights on, you know, the time slot. It's like an infomercial. It's like a purchased time slot. So all the commercials on the broadcast are for his products and for his movies. It's the Being Frank Show, starring Frank D'Angelo. On tonight's show, part one of Frank's exclusive interview with former presidential advisor to Donald Trump, Anthony Scaramucci. And yes, he also makes movies. So since, I think, 2013, uh, he's made something like seven or eight films. The first one was called Real Gangsters. Sicilian Vampire is probably the most famous. I think you and I have watched both of those. We watched No Deposit. No Deposit. Which is, I think, my favorite one. I think we've seen a few. I think there's been at least... You know, possibly, possibly. I mean, I've seen... I'm kind of like his John the Baptist. (laughs) Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your your kind of sole hit in this country's paper of record was a review of a Frank D'Angelo movie. (laughs) That's right. I've written for the Globe and Mail once, and it was a review of Sicilian Vampire. (laughs) <laughs> that's my legacy uh i mean you know listen i'm not to be immodest but i'm kind of the guy who who made frank d'angelo because 
in 2015, uh, when his third movie was coming out, I wrote an article about him for Torontoist called The Frank D'Angelo Cinematic Universe, which I believe was the first serious critical attention that his, his cinema had received. Uh, how, how did Frank respond to this, uh, well, this piece I, of Well, yours? I remember that he posted it on Facebook and he said, it's not complimentary, but the writing is decent, which I actually thought was like pretty, pretty good of it. Yeah. But, you know, a couple weeks later, you and I were on King Street walking past the Forget About It Supper Club and there was a banner there for Sicilian Vampire. <laughs> And and I was like, Will, you should take a photo. And you you, you knelt down, and, and I just took this photo of you kind of smiling and pointing at it. And Frank did not take so kindly. W- within that. minutes of it being posted, <laughs> Frank was like, this loser has been stalking me for months. Look at this loser. And, you know, I've written about him a few times. I've talked about him a lot. He doesn't appreciate the attention, but... Well, in fact, when we walked into the theater tonight, you're like, okay, where, where's a nice dark row that we... <laughs> I was I was half expecting you to pull out like a you know fake glasses and a mustache. I was I did really think he was going to recognize you at one point. Well, I mean, if he doesn't like my work, it's like you know, fine. I think critics should maintain a critical distance from their subjects so that they can be objective and, and have a certain amount of rigor. You can't cross those professional boundaries. Can we can we talk a little more about the restaurant? Because I never experienced this. Well, last year or a couple of years in a row, you'd go see a Frank movie like The Neighborhood. And a lot of The Neighborhood is shot at Frank's restaurant. So you go see it at the light box at this you know film festival. Then you go across the street and you'd walk in, and it's like, oh, this is the filming location for the movie, and then you're just on the set of the yeah, movie. The speakers would be playing Frank's music, which is wall to wall in his movies. Uh huh. And then you sit down, and then over there, it's Frank, and he's holding court at his table, and you, and it's like this is like immersive theater. This feels like I walked into the movie I just saw, and it's so surreal. How would you describe Frank's music? He's a bit of a crooner. Kind of an R&B, kind of a Harry Chapin <laughs> quality, I would say. He's been influenced by, you know, some of the classics, you yeah, know. He do, I've seen him do a Motown medley. Uh-huh. Uh, and he does a lot of original compositions, too, though. He does all the music for his movies, and his movies, which I guess we're going to get to in a minute, <laughs> his movies, people will be talking in the movies, and his songs will be playing sort of like Muzak in the background, and you keep hearing his voice. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about, like, Whoa! <laughs> and it's a weird, distracting thing. What was the food like at his restaurant? Oh, it was fine. You know, it's like you know the Olive Garden. <laughs> it's like that. Probably maybe a little better than that. You don't go for, there for the food. <laughs> you go there to soak in the. No, wine. you go there. You go for the for the wine. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. Give me, give me your finest vintage. Yeah, the only the only item on the menu is yeah your finest your <laughs> your most expensive vintage of wine. I think, though, the centerpiece of Frank D'Angelo as a phenomenon are these movies. And the movies, I think, caught my attention originally because they're loaded with celebrities. So his movies have had Daniel Baldwin, Eric Roberts, Chris Christopherson, Martin Landau, Doris Roberts, Uh, Robert Loggia. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Joe Pe... Oh, no, wait, that's someone else's movies. Forgive me. Well... I get them confused. Probably the biggest get he ever had was James Caan, Uh who was in Sicilian Vampire and The Red Maple Leaf. And the scene of him and James Caan in Sicilian Vampire is so great because there's so much build-up to it. He meets them in the hall, and then they walk down the hall together, and then they sit down at the desk and start talking. And you realize this is like when De Niro and Pacino met each other. Yeah, in heat. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. this is a Clash of the Titans moment. (laughs) 
And in fact, according to TMZ, Sicilian Vampire came up in James Caan's divorce case because in his case, he said something like, my wife has spent all my money, so now I'm forced to act in movies like (laughs) Sicilian Vampire to pay the bills. And they, you know, they they screened like the gigolo scene in court. He was like, see what I have to do. <laughs> I'm James Caan. I could be anywhere in the world, but I chose to be here to do a big Frank show. Thank you and my condolences. <laughs> yeah, I'm Paul Sorvino and we're watching the Being Frank show. Hi, I'm Robert Davi and I'm here in uh, Hamilton, but I'm watching the Being Frank show. So stay tuned. I mean, the movies are showcases for for Frank to kind of do his like Robert De Niro thing uh, with all of these kind of aging celebrities. He's he's kind of like in every movie I've seen him in, he's kind of an amalgam of you know what he takes to be you know different Italian alpha male archetypes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like the movies are very much like. He's always like a you know a tough guy who people yeah. are afraid of. He's he's a he's a guy that you don't fuck with, <laughs> and he can never show himself in his movies being at all vulnerable. No. So you know he made a movie called The Joke Thief where he's this like disgraced comedian who gets one last shot at hitting it big, and there's no tension. Everyone loves him. Uh, he's like I can't come into work today. I I have this big shot at a national special, <laughs> and the guy who runs the car dealership is like oh that's fine go ahead. <laughs> Like, there's no tension. There's no conflict because well, everybody loves him in these movies. Well, I mean, in this movie, and we'll get we'll get to the plot, <laughs> will we ever? But I mean, you know, just on a narrative level, this movie, which was called what? Make a Deal with the Devil? Uh, making a Deal with the Devil. Excuse me. Making a Deal with the Devil. It had essentially no narrative tension. There is, you know, a triggering action, which is that a guy makes a deal uh, with the cops. The deal goes through. And everyone's happy, except except for the guy that's dead. But there's no the protagonist don't doesn't suffer any obstacle on the path to success. Don't sell yourself short. Those are those Italian gangsters. What do you know? Those are our cops. My plan is simple. Mario Galbani. Could we have a conversation? Do I have a choice? I mean, if I tell you no, you're going to sit anyway, right? Mario has muscle. Some of the most dangerous and evil muscle the world has ever known. A hitman. This man is very, very precise. Certo. I know who you are. We all know who you are. We would like to make you a proposition. The FBI offered you a deal. They offered me the deal. To give me up, where do we go from here? You want the FBI to make a deal with the devil. Now, I assume Frank is a wealthy man. He can certainly afford to in- to invest a lot of money into these things. I'm not sure a lot of money was invested <laughs> in this one, let's be fair. A lot of money for, for you and me. Uh-huh. But a lot of his movies were paid for by this guy who is Frank's longtime business partner, Barry Sherman, who is a pharmaceutical billionaire. Very well connected in this country. And I don't know why Barry Sherman put so much money into these movies, because for a while, while Barry Sherman was alive... These movies would get full-page ads in the daily newspapers. There would be billboards downtown 
all there would be billboards across the country for these movies. And do you know that it was Sherman that funded them? Barry Sherman's name has been in the credits of these films too. Right. Well, what I know is that when Sherman passed away, the movies became a lot smaller scale, and they don't get first run engagements at theaters anymore. So Sherman didn't exactly I mean, passed away. You know, he was he was <laughs> he, politely he and his it. wife were found dead in their in their home and under quite mysterious circumstances. And they had a kind of a state funeral because he was such a big deal. I believe Justin Trudeau himself and Kathleen Wynne and John Tory. Yeah. yeah. So when Barry Sherman died, I kind of thought, well, okay, that's it for Frank because these movies. It's not like there's exactly a, an audience that's chomping at the bit for them. Um, well, speak for yourself. Well, uh, you're, you're, you're in front of them right here. <laughs> the contradictory evidence is sitting right here. So I thought this would be it. But no, Frank <laughs> kept making movies. And he made this movie called The Joke Thief, where it's maybe 75 minutes long. And fully half of it or a third of it is just a stand-up comedy show that he, he staged and filmed. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, well, if, if he thinks this is a releasable movie, then sky's the limit. And now he's got a new movie called Making a Deal with the Devil. And we just saw the world premiere. Frank was in attendance. Was Daniel a red, Baldwin. Red carpet premiere. Uh, there was Daniel Baldwin, who will be familiar to you as the star of... Of, uh, of the fictional mob zombie crossover film Cleaver from HBO's The Sopranos. And, you know, uh, some have compared Cleaver to the works of Frank D'Angelo. I myself <laughs> would not posit such an unkind comparison. Well, Cleaver is a better movie than this last <laughs> one. I kind of don't even know where to begin with this movie because it is about as nothing a movie as I've ever seen. And I say this with affection because I I had a great time watching it. I had a great time watching it with my pals. Some of the people sitting behind us were clearly in the squarely in the irony camp. Yeah, like there's a there's a small subculture that I think Will has been partly responsible for creating. I've seen several Frank D'Angelo movies in theatrical settings now, and this was I think the most audible contemptuous the audience has ever been. Oh yeah, there were a lot of people talking during this movie. The theatrical experience was incredible because I'm told that Nick Valalengo was in the audience, who is the Academy Award winning screenwriter of Green Book. (laughs) He is being honored by the Italian Film Festival and Nick Valalenga, Academy Award aside, he's kind of the Frank D'Angelo of L.A., so it's just an incredible (laughs) meeting of the minds. Oh, by the way, when the movie was over, we were in the hallway and who walked past... David fucking Cronenberg. Yeah, so I've seen all my favorite filmmakers tonight. <laughs> You've seen your your first favorite filmmaker, Frank D'Angelo, and your second favorite, Mr. David Cronenberg. Now, the plot of Making a Deal with the Devil. Um, I mean, it's amazing because the film only has, you know, about five or six scenes in it. And the scenes basically consist of, like, whatever the point of the scene is, the characters just repeat it over and over again. But boy, it's going to take a... Well, because I'm still <laughs> unclear about a lot of the plot because so little happened in it, and yet what did happen never really made a lot of sense. But the FBI is having a meeting, and they want to bring down this really bad Russian gang uh-huh. uh, who are led by Daniel Baldwin and a Russian speaker who I believe is supposed to be his brother. Uh-huh. And I'm sorry, Frank, I'm forgetting exactly what they were doing, but the, the Russian brother was giving information to Putin. Something like that. That yeah. was actually in the dialogue. And, and it was great because in this first scene when where all the FBI guys are talking, like, it's not really clear that they're cops, first of all. And then second of all, like, one of them keeps referring to, like, the president. And you assume it's, like, the CEO of a company or something. And later in the movie, you, you discover that it's supposed to be, you know, the president. Of the United States. <laughs> of the United States. Who's He's, on the phone. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, they want this guy, they want this guy gone. They want him to sleep with the fishes. And so they contrive a bit of a plot. Yeah, the lead investigator has created this idea. Uh, the lead investigator, by the way, played by Michael Pare from Eddie and the Cruisers and Streets of Fire and all of Frank D'Angelo's movies. <laughs> he, he says there's the other big family, the Italian family, led by Danny Aiello. His brother is in prison and his brother needs urgent medical treatment or he's going to die. So we get that family's most feared hitman, played by Frank D'Angelo, to go in and do a hit on the Russians. And this, of course, sounds flagrantly illegal, and, and it is. It's the FBI working with this mafia family to do an extrajudicial killing. And the guy who's in prison, I mean, we learned that he's he's got like a 250-year sentence, so we're not, I don't think the film tells us what he did, but it was probably pretty bad. Yeah, and I'm looking at this thinking, well, why get Danny Aiello's family involved? If you're going to do an extrajudicial killing, why not just do it? I like the scene where they go to meet with Danny Aiello. And I mean, you know, to this movie's credit, it rings so much out of so little. So, I mean, this the cops go up, go up to go up to him and, you know, he's outside of a you know, restaurant or something. I mean, there's a good like. 10 minutes it felt like an hour of him just being like oh hitman what hitman yo i'm a legitimate businessman this is my establishment oh, what are you doing here what are we? It, there's there's a lot kind of in that vein um actually though the the scene after that was even better because that because of course he he agrees to uh the fbi's proposal but it remains to bring in you know frank who's the hitman so they go to his house <laughs> Well, it's it's a hotel room where he's got all of his guns and knives uh, laid out on the bed. No, well, it's his home. He oh, specifically yes. says that. In the yes. I That's mean, why there's you, a do not disturb you, sign you, you, on it. You may be right that it, the set was a hotel room. <laughs> and then Danny Aiello, Frank, Michael Pere, and Tony Nardi have this really long conversation where Aiello is saying, you got to do this for me, Frank. Uh, my, it's like, Yo, you fucking you bring the FBI to my home? You yeah. <laughs> Day of my daughter's wedding. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My brother, I love him. I got to get my brother out. And Frank's like, don't worry. It's done. It's done. It's done. You know, you don't understand. You know, I got I to gotta get my, my brother out. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have to. It, it, it's done. Word of honor. Yeah, you tell me you tell me what to do, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it just keeps going in circles and circles. They said, you know, what? why are you bringing these, these rats? <laughs> these, these maggots. These, yeah. you know, a 10-letter word that starts with C. He uses a lot. <laughs> but anyway, eventually, eventually, after reiterating the premise of the movie over and over, again for three scenes we're in action so apparently the fbi have to follow frank while he's courting the russians part, part of the plot inexplicably is that not one but two agents have to witness him do this extremely illegal murder for it to count and for the deal to go through which makes no sense because if you're doing this under the table uh -huh. um, why well, would you want the FBI to be there? But as we learned, as the film impresses upon us, uh, you know, it, you, it's it's with, you know, the, the president wants to see this done. So. And, and right, it's the president who is going to give the brother a full pardon. A full, <laughs> a full pardon, pardon if this job is done. Now, how would the president explain that to the American people? <laughs> be like, oh, yeah, I gave this horrific murderer with a 250 year sentence a pardon. Uh, and why? Uh, I can't tell you. It's, it's, it's a secret, but but just trust me on this. Well, if the president is Trump, I feel like he would Well, have yeah. <laughs> the next scene is Frank goes with Tony Nardi and Michael Pere, the FBI guys, to this restaurant. Ah, yes. This is the virtuosic food ordering scene. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
Uh, they're there, and Daniel Baldwin's at another table, and he's like, I know who that guy is. I don't is. understand what happens, because he just sort of sees them, and he's like, yeah, I know who that guy is. And he just goes over, and what's the purpose of him going over, and how does he know who he is? Well, these guys are doing, these two alphas are doing this sort of mating ritual around <laughs> each other. They're like sniffing each other out. He, come, he comes over, and he tells Frank that he respects his food choices, which is really funny, because... He doesn't actually order from the menu. He just brusquely says to the waiter, like, you know, give me the, give, whatever, the, whatever in front of the chef. Give you know, me, you know yeah, what I want. You know what I want. Yeah. So how would he know what he ordered? <laughs> well, because he's, because he's Frank. He's the most feared hitman in the city. Everybody knows. The most feared hitman in New York City, by the way. The movie is set very convincingly in New York. <laughs> North York, you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Frank is somehow going to court Daniel Baldwin and gain his trust, and then he's going to do the hit. Why not just do the hit? The movie could have been over just then and there. (laughs) But anyway, they go to Daniel Baldwin's club, which is a strip club. Well, yeah, so the, the, the lead FBI guy ends up taking a call from his wife, and he's like, I'm at a strip club. And she's like, what? And he's like, I'm at a strip club. I'm working. And she's like, okay. And I mean, I don't know, you know, this is one of the comic moments, uh a little lyrical moment. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those kind of clothes strip clubs that I guess (laughs) is popping up. Well, Frank's a classy guy, you know, he doesn't (laughs) stoop to that level. And uh, not much happens at the strip club scene, although we spend a lot of time there. Essentially, Frank comes in and Daniel Baldwin's there and they're like... (laughs) Then he leaves. And and, and Daniel Baldwin's like, how about you come over to my house on uh, (laughs) The day of my daughter's wedding. (laughs) Uh, We have the greatest opera singer in the world over there. (laughs) Frank's like, okay. So this is kind of a mating ritual. Meanwhile, (laughs) the terms of the deal are that the brother who's in prison is going to be pardoned within 24 hours. So he is pardoned before the hit is done. This seems like a tactical mistake on the president's part, I think. But, you know, if we start, I guess if we start, you know, interrogating every plot hole in the movie, we're going to be here all day. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I mean, the sort of dance that's going on between Baldwin and and D'Angelo, you know, it it creates some some potential which ends up going unrealized. I mean, because you think maybe Frank's going to betray the FBI. I mean, there's a later scene where there's some tension. But I love love this part where he beats up the FBI agent like he just punches him in the face for no reason, for no reason. And then the FBI agents, hey, you got to help me up. And then Frank just helps him up and they just like go on as friends like nothing happened. Well, that is supposed to be the scene in most movies where there's the conflict that ends up getting resolved. Well, this is kind of what I thought might happen. Yeah. Yeah. And Frank and the FBI guy have this very cliche little conversation where Frank says, you think you're better than me? You do what I do. It's just you're in the FBI. <laughs> We're both murderers, but for you, it's legal. We're not so different, you and I. And the movie has done nothing to... Or what, how, how is Michael Pere on Frank's level? What has he done? We've not seen him murder anyone. No. Not even, not even in a, an abstract sense. But this dispute lasts all of 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then Michael Pere invites Frank over to the family house. And there's a bit of a fish out of water scene, I guess, where where his wife's like, "Oh, we have a we have a wanted hitman here," and it's supposed to be kind of funny. I really like the gag where uh, you know she's going to answer the door and she tells her daughters like not to touch any of the food, and then they do touch the food. That yeah. was that was pretty funny. So it was at this point that I realized, oh wow, this is kind of like a buddy movie. Actually, this is an opposites attract kind of like unlikely like midnight run or something uh, it's like bon cop bad cop but for italians and russians yeah and that, and that that kind of surprised me so 
you know, a, a more competent filmmaker would have. Would, oh, oh, you're, you're right. No, sorry, a, a different filmmaker, a, a filmmaker of different abilities, uh, would have created kind of more of a dialogue between these two friendships: the friendship between Frank and the FBI guy, and Frank and the Russian mobster. It would have been kind of like, I think one of Frank's touchstones for this movie has to be The Departed. <laughs> But but I Well we did we did learn from the introduction that he's a film buff. Yeah, that's right. And I mean the movie is nothing if not a series of scenes that you've seen in movies before. <laughs> uh, but but none of that happens. And then after that, we get to the scene where it's at Daniel Baldwin's house. Yeah, it's the party and he's invited him and you think, what's gonna happen? And there's this opera singer there who sings an aria for seven minutes eight minutes and she just keeps singing and singing and singing and singing to the assembled half dozen people or whatever yeah it looks like a very very grim gathering and then finally (laughs) frank comes in and he takes daniel baldwin to the other room and this is supposed to be like you know the scene in quantum of solace or one of the mission impossible movies where it's like the action scene is juxtaposed against the opera music Mm -hmm. um and so Frank takes Daniel Baldwin to the other room and he shoots him and he shoots the brother. And then the FBI just waltzes into this, this murder. And just as they're walking out, the brother... Um, yeah, wounded comes out to avenge uh, Baldwin. And so Michael Pere pulls up his gun, shoots him and says, I saved your life, you know? The movie doesn't treat that with a lot of reverence. The way the sound was edited, like you couldn't even hear the gun firing. And it's like, oh, well, they just, yeah. they just shot the guy, whatever. Yeah. Frank doesn't even react. And then they leave the place and that's it. No, no more movie. Will very audibly said, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the row of people behind us was just losing it. <laughs> so the, there were three credit sequences in this movie, okay? Because there's credits at the beginning, and I swear every single person in the movie is like first build in the movie. So it just lists off every name. Every name the, is on screen for 15 seconds. Yeah, and then the same thing happens... Uh, at the end of the movie with pictures of each person. And then, and this is where I just couldn't, I couldn't (laughs) keep it together. Just the full credits roll. And it was the slowest credit sequence you've ever seen. And you could hear the theater reacting to this (laughs) because clearly, you know, they they looked at the final cut of this and they were like, we got to, you know, I mean, the movie, the movie generously was like 45 minutes. And they were like, we have to wring some more out of this. You know, we have to, for what whatever, like, straight-to-DVD release of this, it's got to be able to say, like, you know, 70-minute running time or whatever. And the quote-unquote Q&A that happened after the movie, the credits were still rolling after they'd all walked off the stage. The credits were rolling when we left the theater. Oh, yeah. Fully... 10 minutes after the movie ended uh-huh. and every, you know, every Frank D'Angelo song on the soundtrack is in the credits, just moving at a snail's pace. I like to think Cronenberg was in the theater and that he saw the movie. Yeah, that's right. That's what he was coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Q and a, I thought was interesting. Uh, <laughs> it had a somewhat, I think funereal tone. Maybe we shouldn't get into it too much, but Frank didn't seem that thrilled. Well, well, the uh, people behind the festival had been pitching that this was going to be a Q&A, and there was no Q&A. It well, was just they all talked, the microphone passed around, and then Frank was like, no Q&A, we're going home. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Baldwin, I thought, put a pretty pretty brave face on it. He, he started the Q&A by saying, like, 
wow, you know, this is like my 140th movie. Mm-hmm. And, and you know... Look, I've done pictures with Oliver Stone. I've he done, said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, done, yeah I've, I've done pictures with all these guys. And, and, you know, Frank's a little different from them. And we, we learned that this movie and another movie were shot in three days. Um, Hard to believe. Uh, it goes to show that you can shoot two movies in three days, but, but should you? That said, I, I I am a fan of Frank D'Angelo. I hope he continues making movies. Well, you, ha- you have to have chaos inside you to give birth to a dancing star. <laughs> what was the other thing that Daniel Baldwin said? Oh, well, uh, he, he said, you know, there are these these very expensive movies, you know, the the, the Oliver Stone movies that, that I've done. But then there are these these little movies, the movies that are, are just shot in a few days. And, and you know, you listen to that and you're thinking like, well, yeah, you know, uh, Making a Deal with the Devil is a movie. Uh, Gone with the Wind is a movie. <laughs> All Men are Socrates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's to say? <laughs> There's a particular atmosphere in, in Frank's movies. They're always set at these spaces of kind of gaudy wealth, very sort of conspicuous excess, but they're always also sort of like kind of antiseptic looking. Well, it's like a sort of suburban affluence. Yeah. Like non-metropolitan affluence. Which is a very particular kind of affluence, (laughs) you know? It's a type of affluence lived by people for whom class is a noun that means refinement. Yeah. You know, there's part of me that looks at Frank and sort of wants to say, you know what? He he made these movies. He's been, he's uh, given it his all. And uh, that's more than a lot of people have done. You know, he actually puts his money where his mouth is and makes movies. But... Where that theory breaks down is that he's a wealthy man or has access to wealth. And so if you have access to that kind of wealth, you can kind of spend it on whatever you want, basically. Right. You can just project your ego in, in whatever stupid way like that you can think of. And, and he did. And, you know, remember when The Disaster Artist came out? The kind of... And, you know, I think The Disaster Artist is an okay movie, but... The yeah, I enjoyed of, it. The thesis of it is basically laugh at Tommy Wiseau all you want, but at least he made a movie. But Tommy Wiseau is also an absurdly rich um, idiot who can just kind of... Well, now. Yeah, but he, he could just afford to blow $6 million on, you know, replacing his entire yeah, cast. A and film crew. with passion of Tennessee Williams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To some degree, I agree with the idea that, well, if you've made a movie, you deserve the baseline recognition for having gotten out of bed in the morning and made a movie. But I definitely think there are times when that breaks down. And I think we may be looking at one right now. Seriously, though, I'm very proud. Whatever else happens, you made a movie, Christopher. Nobody can take that away. 100 years from now, we're dead and gone. People will be watching this fucking thing. You know how much Imperial Vodka I scored just from this party alone? I had a couple of cases put down in your card. So not a lot of politics in this one, but I think that's okay. Well, it's certainly political in a broader <laughs> sense. I mean, we, while the personal is political. I, I mean, I think a phenomenon like Frank D'Angelo, like only a socioeconomic world like the one we have now can produce a Frank D'Angelo. We've been, we've been pretty cerebral of late, so I think it was time. My parents made an observation to me recently that I thought was very interesting. Uh, my, my parents are in their early 60s now. A lot of their friends are in their early 60s. Something they've observed is that people of their generation are just very angry right now. And as they've said, when you get to be 60, you get your report card on life. You know if your career has been a success. You know if your marriage has been a success. You know if your kids have been a success. So at 60, there are a lot of people who actually get divorced right. because they think, well, I've got 20 more years to get it right. And uh, another thing that unites a lot of 60-year-olds is they don't have as much money as they feel that they should because they've bought a 
friggin' $75,000 SUV or something like that. So there's just oh, a lot of... It's because of the friggin' deficit is what. That's right. Just There's just a lot of free-floating <laughs> anger. And that's Trump's constituency right there. <laughs> I'm not sure why I'm thinking of this right now as we talk about Frank D'Angelo, but maybe it's just something about like a certain kind of middle-age slash late middle-age malaise. But... This thing my parents told me I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I think it has a lot of relevance to the world we live in now. Now watch this drive. Whoa, I'm just a gigolo, and everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. They forever dance, selling each romance, ooh, just singing. And there will come a day when you will pass away. I'm 